can be seated. Amen. Our text for this morning is Ezra chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, if you will turn there with me. Ezra chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. After 70 years of exile, God's people have returned home. We've been documenting this through the first three chapters so far. Immediately upon returning to Jerusalem into the promised land, they establish altar and temple worship. I think within a month or two of them arriving in Israel again, in Judah, they begin building this altar. And the text, as we saw last week and the week before from chapter 3, says that they did all as was written in the law of Moses. Driven by Scripture. Next, they turned and they began to establish the temple foundation. They're beginning to rebuild as Cyrus had set the edict out to rebuild the temple of the Lord. And once they got the foundations established, they paused. And they worshipped according to the directions of David. Now they are re-engaged in chapter 4 in rebuilding the temple. Though as we saw, it's much simpler and some had a problem with that. And so we pick up in chapter 4 and they're rebuilding the temple after the, the pause for a ceremony of worship. And all seems to be going well, but I want you to know this morning that they do not live happily ever after. You need to know that something wicked this way comes. You need to see in chapter 4 that home for the Israelites is a dangerous, dangerous place. So the first thing I want to do this morning is I want to show you the Israelites' efforts to protect the purity of the worship of God. That's point number one. And number two, I'm going to show you that they're going to struggle in doing that. And they are going to be accused by the Samaritans of all kinds of things in an effort to thwart their worship of God. So start with me now. Ezra chapter 4, verse 1. Let's read first through verse 5. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel... They approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esheradon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us. In building a house to our God. But we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius king of Persia. I want to introduce you to these adversaries this morning that the Israelites have run up against. These adversaries are referred to earlier in Ezra chapter 3, 3 as those who they feared and fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. This is who this is now. Remember, they fear the people of the lands and so they build an altar to God. 
These are the adversaries. They are Samaritans. It's a dirty word in ancient Israel. They are Jewish people who have intermarried with Assyrians after being conquered by Assyria hundreds of years earlier. I, I want you to turn with me to the left in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 17. I think the scriptures best introduce us to these adversaries of Israel. And I've got a passage that just must be read together. 2 Kings chapter 17, starting in verse 24, we'll go to 33. I want you to listen closely to a description of these people that are wanting to help the Israelites rebuild God's temple. After all, they worship the same God, right? 2 Kings seventeen twenty-four. And the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kathua, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharvaim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. And at the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So the king of Assyria was told, quote, The nations that you have carried away and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the law of the God of the land. Therefore, he has sent lions among them. And behold, they are killing them because they do not know the law of the God of the land. That's a problem. Verse 27, Then the king of Assyria commanded, Send there one of the priests whom you carried away from there and let him go and dwell there and teach them the law of the God of the land. So one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and lived in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. But every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the shrines of the high places that the Samaritans had made. Every nation in the cities in which they lived. The men of Babylon made Sukkoth Benoth. The men of Kuth made Nergal. The men of Hamath made, made Ashima. And the Avites made Nibhaz and Tartak. And the Sapphirevites burned their children in the fire to Adrimelech and Anamelech, the gods of Sapphirevaim. They also feared the Lord and appointed from among themselves all sorts of people as priests of the high places who sacrificed for them in shrines of the high places. So, verse 33, they feared the Lord, but also served their own gods. After the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. These are the people that asked the people of Judah to allow into the rebuilding of the temple of God. And these adversaries, as they are introduced here in chapter 4, are going to be present in the rest of our time in Ezra and Nehemiah. They're going to be there at every turn. Nothing that the Israelites do will go unchallenged by these adversaries and it all begins with them asking hey can we help you rebuild the temple to the lord who lives here because hey after all we worship him as well their request cannot be accepted let us rebuild 
for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him. I say to you this morning, that's impossible to allow them to do this. It's impossible for them to worship their God as they do, even. Why is it impossible? Because they are polytheists. They worship many gods. At best, they're syncretists. They will synchronize all of their religions with the worship of Yahweh, the God of Israel. And the God of Israel is one. He is exclusive. He is holy and righteous. And He is not to share a throne with any other God that any man would create. I also tell you it's impossible for them to worship with these Israelites. Because they don't have God's word to worship by. They had a priest that came back that taught them the ways of worship. And I would say to you this morning that I think they have been trained in rituals. But they don't worship according to the law of Moses. According to the distinctive directions of King David. It's impossible for them to do that. And the proof is that they feared the Lord but they also served their own gods. They're not welcome to worship this God. They treated the God of Israel as if he was one of many false gods. They brought him down to the level of the gods of the people. This sounds exactly like what Paul ran into in Athens when he addressed the people in the Areopagus. Remember in Exodus, uh, Acts chapter 17, 22, Paul says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. These people are very religious, aren't they? For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, quote, to the unknown God. Oh, you're so religious. What therefore you worship, Paul says, as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And he proceeds to take them back to creation and bring them all the way forward to Jesus Christ. These people's requests to help in the rebuilding of the temple of God, because they worship that God as the Israelites do, has got to be responded to carefully. And what we see in the scriptures is a very, very firm response from Israel's leaders. Look at what they say. You have nothing to do with us. In building a house to our God. (laughs) That's harsh. That's stiff. Might even seem discourteous. What What a nice offer, but no thanks. Why didn't they say something like that? They go on to say, we alone will build to the Lord. They understand what's at stake in this request. You see, if they allow these Samaritans... To help them rebuild the temple, they would be practicing what got them exiled to begin with. Syncing up with world religions. and Perverting the true worship of the one and living God. And so they here in this moment see this as a moment that should be one of protecting the faith by blocking the infiltration of false religion into God's people. So they got a sword out and protected it, so to speak. These people would have corrupted the worship 
that was to be according to the law of Moses. And this stance that was taken, this firm, bold, strong response was right. But it's going to cost them dearly. And they're going to learn that it is dangerous at home when you live for the Lord. It's a dangerous world. We need to learn from this. We, as we have said the last two weeks, we are building a temple. We are the temple of God. As individuals, yes, but congregationally, we are the temple of the living God. He lives within us. And we're still building, aren't we? We'll be building until He comes again. And as we build our temple, we must do so with God's people, and we must do so in God's ways. We do not need the world helping us build God's temple, the church, us. The world would love to help us, <laughs> even in 2017. Oh, they would love to help us. They say, well, you get it so wrong. If we could just get you some, a few resources, if we could just interview, introduce a few concepts into your midst, man, you'd be going. I get emails like this every week. You gotten them yet? I get them every week. How they want to help our church grow, help our church give more money, help our church do all these things. Our culture claims to be Christian, but the truth is they've only borrowed a few of our practices and they've taken a ton of our vocabulary. And with that, they think they are qualified to help us. And we need to understand that they're not. The world that we live in does just as these Samaritans did. They fear the Lord, but they also serve their own gods after the manner of the nations. There's a lot of syncretism going on. People have synchronized secular living with Christian living, and it doesn't work. And that's exactly what the Samaritans had done. These Samaritans, like the people of our day, they practice a counterfeit Christianity. That's borrowed our practices and our language, but it's counterfeit because it's not the true worship of the one living Christ. And so we need to be sure that we follow in the lead of these Israelites and we live faithful to the word of God so that we, by living rightly before God, can expose the counterfeits of the culture. That's the challenge. So... We do a lot of things to protect from this. I'll just give you one. We put a premium on regenerate church membership. If someone wants to join our church, we don't walk them down the aisle, spin them around, and present them as, all, as members. We meet with them, and we walk through the Scriptures with them, and we hear from them how they came to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Even Dylan told us this from the waters two weeks ago. We, we make certain that when we baptize, we make certain that when we bring into membership someone, we make certain that they are not counterfeit, that they are authentic believers in Jesus Christ, as best as we as human beings can. And we do have to look for the key signs from Scripture in the lives of people. 
And so as we build the church, we bring new members in, and those new members need to be of us and like us and with us. Otherwise, we have to say, and we might say it a little nicer than this, man, you're welcome here, but you can't help us build right now. We'd love for you to join the team at some point. Keep coming, keep listening, and become qualified to build. We don't say, no, (laughs) no building for you. So we need to understand that we need to live in this world, but we cannot become of this world. Jesus says in John 17, to his Father, he prays this, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So we're to be in this world for sure. But we're not to be of it. We're not to be contaminated by it. We are to remain pure to the word of God in our building of the church. But I do want to insert a caution here. We cannot become isolationists. Jesus asked the Father to keep us in the world. We cannot isolate from the world we need to be in it no we're not isolationists we're evangelists and we would love nothing more than to help develop qualified builders to help us build this temple of god but we cannot allow the world to come in and build we do not build the church so that the world will come that's how the world would do it We build the church so that God will be glorified and then it's God who brings the world to us. And through evangelistic endeavors, the world becomes born again and becomes of us and with us and in us. Well, as, as we move on here, we need to understand that the intentions of these people get revealed very, very quickly. They want to build because they worship the same God they have for all these years from when they were brought here. Hey, we got taught by one of the priests how to do this thing that you call Christianity, so let us do it with you. But there's no relationship with God. And in verse 4 of Ezra 4, when they got told no, the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. And they go on in verse 5, they bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus and Darius. So the Jews were proven right in not bringing them in to help. Instead, when these people get rejected from their request, they come in and they threaten the Jews. They intimidate the Jews. They, yeah, they sneered at them and mocked them. A good translation I ran across of this is literally they made the hands weak of the Jews in their building efforts. It weakened their hands to where they were discouraged to the point of stopping. But they didn't stop there in verse 5. They bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. This is a legal term. These counselors are attorneys. They hired attorneys. 
And these attorneys waged war against the Jews in the courts of the Persian law back in Babylon. So the the Jews were fighting at home with these adversaries, and they had a, a, a war abroad in the courts back in Persia. And these counselors that had been bribed were trying to frustrate every angle that these Israelites went through to rebuild the temple. They perverted good and evil, these adversaries. Isaiah says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. These counselors were bribed to pervert good and evil, dark and light, bitter and sweet, to frustrate the building of God's temple. This is exactly how Satan has operated from the beginning. Paul says in 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen, such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Let us help you build. We worship the same God that you do. They're servants of unrighteousness, disguised as angels of light. We see this even in the world that we live in. Yes, we must be in the world, but we cannot become of the world. So there is great effort against these Israelites to rebuild the temple in which they are to worship God according to the law in. And we see that the world hates them because of the God and the exclusivity that they have in worshiping Him. Here's the second point this morning. These people, for the rest of chapter 4, level three accusations against the Jews. And we're going to run through them very quickly to see the scope and the breadth of what they accuse them of. And what it is that actually gets them so discouraged in building. Now, there's, there's a, an explanation that comes with verses 6 through 23 of chapter 4 here. Because the timeline starts to get a little wobbly if you're not paying close attention. Ezra here covers a large span of history in chapter 4. He leaves the immediate and fast forwards into the future describing all of the persecution that these Israelites endure from these adversaries. First, there's opposition that begins right here in the context that we're in against those who are rebuilding the temple. This is in the 530s. Actually, I believe we're in the year 536 B.C. And from 536 all the way down to 520, that's called 16 years, they discouraged the Israelites from rebuilding the temple for 16 years. After that, the the text shifts and they start rebuilding the temple walls, uh, the city walls of Jerusalem. Well, that happens during the age of Ahasuerus, Uh, from 486 B.C. to 465 B.C. It's 21 years. And then we get to another accusation in Artaxerxes' age, from 464 down to 423. So there are spans of years here, numbering in the area of 100, in which these people are discouraged from rebuilding, yes, the temple for 20 years, but yes, the city walls for the remainder of that time. And so 
Ezra's point is to take us through all of this history of persecution to show how the people of God must be united when facing opposition across a long period of time. Because as I said, these adversaries enter the picture right here in chapter 4 and they stay all the way through the end of the book of Nehemiah. It's a hundred year span, 108 years if I, if I count correctly. So let's look at these accusations. We'll read through these text by text. First one is found in verse 6 of Ezra 4. Just one verse. This is an accusation to Ahasuerus. I never can say it. Ahasuerus. And it says this, in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. We do not know what this accusation included, but we know that they begin a letter-writing campaign to the kings of Persia right here in this moment. The charge is not specific, and apparently it did no good because subsequent letters are in the works. All the while, though, we need to understand that during this first phase of accusation, the Israelites are not building. They've ceased. Accusation number two, let's read verses 7 all the way down through 13. In the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam and Mithridath and Tobiel and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic and translated. Rahum, the commander of Shimshai, And and Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. Rahum, the commander, Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Erech, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is, the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Osnapper deported and settled in the cities of Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river, parentheses, this is a copy of the letter that they sent, jump back in, to, quote, to Artaxerxes, the king, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greeting, and now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, They will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Ezra 4, 8 through 6, 18, the book shifts to Aramaic, much like it does in sections of the book of Daniel. It's proof of the historicity of this text. Why would you switch languages if it wasn't true history? There's reference here to the beyond the river territories. This is the river Euphrates. And it's a large geographic region. The charge that they level is that if this city is rebuilt, the inhabitants of it will not be tax-paying citizens, dear king. And that would not be good. So they bring a financial concern first. The financial concern is strategic because this king, Artaxerxes, has been waging war against the Greek nation. And the war was costly, and the treasury was deplete of funds, and every dime mattered. And so, Artaxerxes, your revenue is going to go down because these people will stop paying taxes if you allow this city to be rebuilt. This got his attention. 
So there's the second charge. The first charge, we don't know the specifics. The second is a financial concern. Let's look at the third, picking up in verse 14. This is also to Artaxerxes some years later. Now because we eat the salt of the palace and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore we send and inform the king in order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers. You will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from of old. That was why the city was laid waste. We make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. So they up it. It's not just financial now. Now it's territorial. They call this city of Jerusalem a rebellious city. And they are right, but what they're not right about is who it rebelled against. (laughs) They rebelled against God. Yes, this, this city was laid waste, but they don't understand. They think that uh, Nebuchadnezzar laid waste to it. But it was actually God who used Nebuchadnezzar as his instrument to throttle this city. Their charge is if the city is rebuilt, they will annex the land from Artaxerxes. And this was his ultimate attention getter. No king wants to lose turf. Whether it be in war or by secession. And this king was going to deal with this charge once and for all. And so his response is found in 17 through 22. The king sent an answer, quote, to Rehum the commander and Shimsai the scribe and the rest of their associates who live in Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river, greeting. And now the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me. And I made a decree, and search has been made, and it has been found that this city from of old has risen against kings, and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it. And mighty kings have been over Jerusalem, who ruled over the whole province beyond the river, to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease, and that this city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And take care not to slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? Oh, let's cease. I'm going to lose revenue, but I'm going to lose territory. We need to stop this. And so you make this an urgent matter of business. Oh, you, my people. Discourage them from rebuilding and bring that to a halt. He even says, take care not to be slack in this matter. I wonder if that sheikh that posted on Facebook about Jacob might at some point say to someone, take care not to be slack in this matter. You got to be ready. They're not slack. We'll learn in Nehemiah chapter one, verse three, that they tore the city walls down and burned the gates. They were ambitious upon this king's edict. Well, they succeed in frustrating the Jews' rebuilding efforts. Real quick to finish 23 and 24. When the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shimshai the scribe and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. And then the work of the house of God that was in Jerusalem stopped 
and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So through intimidation, legal bureaucracy, government intervention, these adversaries stopped the labors of 500,000 workers. And the work stoppage lasted from Cyrus to Darius, 536 to 520. For 16 years, the work stopped on the temple. And then they resumed building in 520, and by 516, four years later, they had finished the temple. The efforts of these Samaritans were persistent, long-standing. But we need to understand that through it all, God was still sovereign. There's still a really big sovereign God outside of this, ruling and reigning over all of this activity. It's the same God that rules and reigns outside of us as we strive to build His church amongst us. Setbacks may come. Challenges are ever-present can be frustrating, discouraging. It can even be lonely at times. But there is a sovereign God who is ruling and reigning over all of the detours and setbacks. What do we learn from this? We learn that from days of old, God's people are persecuted for being faithful to Him. Because at this moment, these Israelites have been nothing but faithful. Everything they're doing is according to the law of Moses and the direction of David. They're even pausing to worship according to what was written. So these people have not been disobedient. And yet God allows adversaries to come in and discourage them. I'm taken back to Yumbi when we had that Saturday, September the 9th, in that Islam school, Islamic school with 98 participants. We walked them through the gospel with a soccer ball. (laughs) Jacob taught them about Jesus being God because he forgave the sins of the man lifted down through the roof by his four brothers. We told them about Jesus Christ, who is God from John chapter 1, 1 through 18. We proclaimed clearly through all of this monotheism, the Lord is one. Yet at the same time, we proclaim to them that God is three persons in one. The Trinity was boldly proclaimed. We stood steadfastly on the deity of Jesus Christ, God with us, God in the flesh. And we nailed it home when we said He is the substitute for the sins of all who would believe in Him. And substitutionary atonement for sins was held high before these Muslims. And you know what they said? We're looking for weapons, stones. What did they say? We agree with a vast majority of what has been said here today. We must focus on what we agree on and live together in harmony. After all, we all worship the same God. The God of Moses, the God of David, the God of John the Baptist, and yes, even the God of this prophet, Jesus. You hear it? Let's work together in Yumbi. Let's make this a better place. We worship the same God that you do. 
This is not new. We experienced it. Jacob is experiencing it now. When the stiff arm is up, no, you can't help us. He gets accused of bribing people with eyeglasses and tablets. (laughs) You see this? Tonight in our home groups, we're going to focus on the Christians in Yumbi. And you're going to see government intervention in the church in Yumbi that we spent time with, that we as a church are partnered with. You're going to see all of this in Ezra chapter 4 happening in Yumbi with brother Pastor Charles and Jacob and Carol in the ministry of Reaching Africa's Unreached. And we're going to pray tonight together for the persecuted saints at St. Paul's Pilgrim's Church in Yumbi. There's a, there's a problem here with these in Yumbi. They say, we, degree, we agree on most everything. There's only a small amount that we don't agree on, and I'm here to tell you this morning that that small amount is gargantuan big. It's Jesus Christ, Son of the living God took on flesh, lived a perfect life, died as a substitute on the cross for our sins. And the grave did not hold him because on the third day he resurrected from the dead. And he still lives to make intercession for the saints where he sits right now at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And we go to Muslim people to tell them about him because he's coming again. When he comes again, he's going to come on a white horse. And he's going to bring judgment on those that are called his adversaries. But those that he calls his people, he's going to gather up together. And we're going to live in the new heavens and the new earth in harmony with him forever. It's not a small difference. It's the difference between eternal life and eternal death. And as we continue to proclaim this truth, we're going to be persecuted for it by the very people that need this truth. I've got another question. Where is God in all of this? It's kind of confusing. God stirred the heart of Cyrus to send them back to Jerusalem to build the temple. God stirred the hearts of the fathers of Israel to go back and to build this temple. They've worshipped according to the law of Moses and the writings of David. Why is God allowing this to happen? Where is God in all of this? Well, I found him in verse 21. I found God in verse 21. The king said, Therefore make a decree that these men be made to cease, and that this city be not rebuilt. Here it is. Here's where God is. Until a decree is made by me. There he is. Because we're going to fast forward in a few months to Nehemiah chapter 1. And this king is going to make a decree that Nehemiah should take a third wave of exiles back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city walls. That's where God is. God is allowing them to be tried and tested for a season. And it is not without hardship that we build the church, the temple of God. But we can rest assured that God will send a decree that will allow rebuilding to happen because God's will cannot be thwarted. There's a loophole. 
Artaxerxes is going to make a decree, and Nehemiah is going to march right through that loophole and go into Jerusalem and rebuild. God is allowing them to be tested and tried. Acts chapter 14, verse 22. Paul says, through many trials and tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of heaven. That's what's happening here. That's what's happening in Yumbi with the sheikh disparaging Jacob on Facebook. That's what happened with Tyndall, Wycliffe, Martin Luther, and all the way through the ages, through many trials and tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of heaven. God is testing and trying us and preparing us for an eternity with him. Here's my last point in all of this. Where is, where is God in all this? God is allowing them, and at times allowing us, to be hated just like he is hated. Jesus said in John 15, 18 to 21, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the world that I, the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. That's what we say back to Jacob. Jacob, they don't know the name of the God, the Christ who sent you to them. And so they're going to hate you. Keep loving them. Be with them, but not of them. Persist in this. God's got a decree of salvation for you and perhaps for them. Stay the course through many trials and tribulations. You will enter the kingdom of heaven that's our message to the persecuted church that's our message to ourselves as we prepare to become perhaps the persecuted church we will be persecuted because our christ leads us in that so now let's transition to remembering the persecution of christ as the substitute for us on the cross we're going to remember his body and his blood. He was the ultimate martyr, the ultimate sufferer. And we are to follow in his footsteps when called upon. He has set the course for us. Christian life is often full of persecution. And we see it as it began in Christ, the head of the church. This morning as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, this is a meal that is for believers in Jesus Christ. If you do not yet believe in Jesus Christ and have not been baptized in faith in Him, we ask you to not come to the table this morning, but to consider what we're doing. And it is our sincere prayer that you would join us one day at this table. That would be joining us in building the temple of God amongst us. The temple is a people. He lives within us. So if you are a born-again Christian, you believe that Jesus Christ died in your place on the cross 
for all of your sins, even though he knew no sin. And if you believe that on the third day he rose from the dead and overcame death once and for all, for all who would believe in him, you're welcome to this table. And we're going to remember that his body was broken for us with bread. We're going to remember it's symbolic to what he endured on the cross. We're going to symbolically remember that, that the, the juice that we take represents his blood that was shed. Because it was blood that had to be spilled for the forgiveness of sins. Life is found in blood, God says in the Bible. And so the blood of Christ gives us eternal life if we believe that it was shed for us. If you're not a member of our church, but you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're welcome to this table. We call you family. We're not closed from the standpoint that this is only for our church membership, but we believe this is a meal for the church at large that believes in Jesus Christ. So you're welcome to join with us if you so wish. I'm going to ask you now to bow and take some time to prepare your hearts to remember the substitutionary atonement of Christ for your sins.